Well, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and turn, please, to Jonah chapter 4. This will be the last week where you have to look in your contents page to work out what page Jonah is on. That's what I've had to do anyway. I could never find it. There's just a few pages. And if you want a title for today's message, it's very importantly called The Jonah in Us. In the book of Jonah, I've just really enjoyed, um, I was sad when we left the book of Philippians, but I've really enjoyed being in Jonah as well. And I think the main reason why I think Jonah is such a great book is because it gives us a wonderful portrait of the Lord, doesn't it? God in his mercy, God in his grace, God in his compassion, the God who saves. And so Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, we see God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. This wicked city, who are far from the Lord, and yet God, full of compassion, wants to save them in their tens of thousands. So he sends Jonah. Well, Jonah doesn't go. So in chapter 1, verse 3, we see Jonah running away from the Lord while he's meant to be going to Nineveh. He runs instead to Tarshish, the other side of the known world at the time. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, sends a storm on Jonah sends the captain and his own missionary to Jonah. Jonah's thrown overboard and God in his mercy sends a great whale to swallow Jonah and care for Jonah. And then after three days and three nights, the whale sicks up Jonah. I wonder what that would have felt like, probably not pleasant. You've been sicked up, as it says, onto the beach effectively. And it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, you could preach on that verse, I think, for six weeks by itself. Because what compassion that speaks of. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. How beautiful. And then you have Genesis, sorry, Jonah chapter 1 verse 16 where we get introduced to different sailors. And the sailors get saved. They start off the story as pagans, uninterested in the Lord. Yet they finish the story worshipping God as Yahweh. They've come to know him and his majesty as the true king of kings and lord of lords. Hinting and showing us the mercy and grace of God. And then in Jonah chapter 3, we see Nineveh, what James Montgomery Boyce calls the greatest revival in history, as thousands and thousands and thousands of people turn to the Lord. They repent. And they turn to the Lord and will start to begin worshipping Yahweh. Jonah is a book full of the mercy and grace and compassion of the Lord. And so as you hit Jonah chapter 4, one would assume that Jonah would be full of happy pills, that Jonah would be praising and thanking God for all that he's seen, all that he's experienced in his own life and seen what is happening in Nineveh, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Let's read together and let's, with a degree of shock in our hearts, I think, examine what Jonah does next. Chapter 3, verse 10, and then we'll read to the end. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being and in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to know that in this moment we pray to the one who saved tens of thousands of people in Nineveh. You are mighty to save. You are more than we could ever ask or imagine in your splendor and might and your worth. And yet in your stillness and grace, you're also here with us today. You're pulling up a seat alongside each one of us because you have some things to ask us. Well, Lord, would we hear your voice today? Would we hear your talking to us, that still, small voice? Lord, have your way amongst us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, so many ways, I think Jonah chapter 4, particularly when you first read it, it's repulsive, isn't it? There's something in it where you just think, Jonah, how dare you? One commentator says, Indeed, Jonah's harsh attitude towards God and the Ninevites becomes all the more reprehensible when viewed against the events of chapters 1 and 2. Oh, what an accurate statement that is. God in his grace has saved Jonah. Jonah was running from the Lord. God pursues him in a storm, and through the sailors and through the captain, through the great fish, God saves him. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Profound compassion on Jonah. And yet Jonah closes the book behaving like a bit of a jerk. He closes the book. You just think, what is your problem? What we see in this chapter is Jonah's arrogance, Jonah's ungratefulness, Jonah's profound selfishness. See, Jonah's world is about this big, all right? It's about like it's about this type of size. He's so self-consumed that that's all he can think about. And it's on massive display right here in Jonah chapter 4. It would appear that the easy part for God has come to an end. The easy part for God being saving the Ninevites in their tens of thousands. Going to basically Iraq and seeing ISIS saved by their tens of thousands. That seems to be easy for the Lord. They've turned to the Lord. They've repented before the Lord. 
And yet what is hard for the Lord, seemingly, namely dealing with Jonah, that remains. Jonah has some serious heart and attitude deficiencies, doesn't he? He's got some serious problems. If he was in your fellowship group, you'd be having a chat with dear Jonah. Because Jonah's obviously, he's obviously got some problems. And yet what I love about this chapter, and, and every time it takes my breath away, is what you see in this chapter is, in, with the background of Jonah's horrible behaviour, we see God's profound compassion and grace and mercy once again. Because in this chapter, he goes after Jonah's heart. God doesn't respond by sitting his son down on the naughty step in this moment and asking him to straighten up, work it out, take it like a man, Jonah, stop it. Now he, he graciously and quietly asks this prophet some questions. He, in effect, pulls up a seat alongside Jonah in this moment and he asks Jonah some questions, not for an information update. God already knows the answers, okay? God's not trying to find out, oh, I just wondered what you thought. God knows exactly what he thinks. But God in his grace wants to ask Jonah some questions so that he may see his heart, so that he may see his what going on in his own heart, in his anger and his difficulty. God does this. You see it all the way through the Bible. You see God drawing up a seat alongside Adam and Eve in the garden, alongside Cain, alongside King David, alongside Job at different points, and now it's Jonah's turn. God is sitting alongside Jonah to ask him some questions to help him see his own heart. And here's the incredible thing about Jonah chapter 4. In Jonah chapter 4, brothers and sisters, I put to you in this chapter, God still today draws a seat alongside each one of us because this chapter is all about the Jonah in us. It's as if God is taking us each individually and saying, all right, let's have a bit of a chat about you. Let's see where you're at in relation to these things. And I want you to know these, is, these are difficult questions. Terry Virgo, once preaching on this chapter, said, for there is a Jonah chapter 4 in all of our lives. I think he's right. We tend to think, oh, this is just Jonah. This is way out there. But actually, when you pay attention to the Lord, you realise he's talking to us individually. And it's uncomfortable grace. I'm pleased, to exa- I'm pleased to get this message out the way because it has been uncomfortable in my office this week as I've basically had for two days the Lord sitting alongside me asking me the same, very same questions that I'm going to be asking you today. And so I sit alongside you. I don't sit as one that's, that's teaching you and preaching to you. I, I preach as one who is sitting alongside you being aware that the Lord is asking me the very same questions. But there are two clear questions. Two clear questions for Jonah, two clear questions for us. We need to understand, and here's the first. Number one, to you as an individual, is there anyone alive today that you are unwilling to reach out to? Is there anyone? Anyone? Inside your lives? or outside of your lives, that you're just unwilling to reach out to. You don't want to go to them. You know, the first verse of chapter 4 sets the tone for the entire chapter. Look with me at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was 
angry. Jonah is displeased. Jonah is angry. Jonah is like a two-year-old having a tanty in this moment. He is displeased. He is angry. And everybody knows it. And what is serious is Jonah levels this anger towards God. So in verse 2 we read, And he prayed to the Lord. I mean, already, I don't pray these type of prayers. You know, we don't want to be praying these things. He prayed to the Lord though and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I knew it. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah's problem, Jonah's chip on his shoulder all the way through this book is not theological. Jonah was a Hebrew. And so Jonah, by the time he was 13, would have known more scripture than probably most of us know in the room. Combined. If you were a Hebrew, you were made to memorize great parts of the Old Testament. You knew your Bible very, very well. And so that's why he quotes quotes Exodus 34, where it says, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jonah knows it. He knows full well, if I go over there, you, because I know what you're like, you're going to save them in in their thousands. He knew it. Jonah's problem wasn't theology. Jonah's problem was that he had restricted the attributes of God of mercy and grace and love. He had restricted those attributes of God to himself and to his own country. The boundaries for Jonah of God's grace and mercy and love were the same as the borders of his own life and the borders of his own country. Jonah's problem was not theological. He knew full well that God would save them in their thousands. Jonah's problem was not fear. When God was calling him, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, I just can't cope with this, I'm going to Tarshish. Jonah's problem was that he was a racist. You don't want to kill them. I hate them. Colour of their skin, way they behave, their lifestyle. I ain't going. So if you're calling me to that, I know what you're like, you're going to save them, I'm going over here. It's repulsive, isn't it? It's horrible. But that's Jonah. Jonah is not wanting to go to Nineveh because he's a racist. So Jonah responds in verse 3 with God having saved them in their thousands. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's how strong his racism is. You know what? If you're going to save them in their thousands, forget it. I'd just rather die. I don't want to see them coming into heaven. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's horrible. And yet God in his grace, having observed Jonah's anger, now goes after his heart, gently and compassionately, and he says, and the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God's not looking for an information update. He knows full well that the answer is no. But he's trying to help Jonah see what's going on in your heart, son. Why are you angry? Why are you doing this? You know, one of the greatest challenges that I think we face in going through Jonah chapter 4, particularly as we understand that, that in this chapter God is pulling up a seat alongside us this morning to ask us some questions, 
is that we can be blinded, I think, by the clear issue of racism in Jonah's life. And we can wrongly assume then that, that this just doesn't relate to me. I don't mind. I'll reach out to anybody. The colour of their skin doesn't matter anything. I'm just going to reach out to anybody. So thanks for, their, thanks for everything, Dave. But I don't relate to Jonah chapter 4 at all. But maybe you do. Because for Jonah, his issue is racism. But maybe for you, the issue is just something different that causes you not to want to reach out to them. So let me ask you again what I believe the Lord wants to ask you. Is there anyone alive today that you are unwilling to reach out to? I'll say it another way. Is there any kind of person that you wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live? See, Jonah wrote off an entire nation because of who they were. He wrote them off. They live outside of Israel. I don't care. They, they, can just, they can just die. I'm not interested in going to them. But maybe in our lives there's more people that we write off, not just because of their race. Maybe there's people in our lives that if we're honest it goes much wider than just race. For example, what about the antagonistic co-worker? The lady who keeps humiliating you and you're just trying to do your job but she constantly belittles you. She constantly gossips about you to other staff members. She constantly, in the way she goes, humiliates you on your job and ridicules you. What about her? What about the homosexual co-worker? And they're like full-on pro-homosexuality. They're constantly going on about what they've done with their boyfriend. And in the way they live, it it just grates against you. And they know you're a Christian, they know what you stand for, and that's why they constantly keep reminding you that they don't stand for that at all. And they think homosexuality is absolutely fine. What about the friend who you shared the gospel with a thousand times? And I mean a thousand times. And it's got to the stage that even though you're sharing it with them, they're not really interested, they're like, oh please, not again. And you're tempted to think, you know what, yeah, you know what, yeah, not again, not again, never. I've told you a thousand times, if you haven't responded now, it's tough. What about the neighbour who just keeps parking their car over your drive? (laughs) And when you arrive to the drive, there they are, and they're smiling at you. And you just want to run that car over with everything in your bones. What about the extended family member whose views of life are totally different from yours? They're pro-choice in everything. So abortion to them, that's fine. Everybody should be open to do that. That's not killing people. That's just, you know, caring for the world, caring for our lives, that's fine. Pornography? Oh, great. Everybody should go for it. Sounds great. I'd love to be in a porno. And then they ask you the question, so... What do you think about homosexual marriage? What do you think? What do you think? And it's clear that they think, this is great! This is wonderful! Everybody should just be allowed to do whatever they want. God doesn't exist. Everybody just do their thing. And you're there with your kids, trying to eat the turkey over dinner, and they're bringing all this up, and you just think, shut up! (laughs) What about the guy who lives down the street 
that all the neighbours are talking about because he just got out of prison for paedophilia. You see, my friends, it's just as we're often being repulsed by Jonah, I think, that we start to see a familiar face in the mirror. Because if we're honest, we start to see our own. Because the truth is, as soon as there is someone in our lives that we wouldn't reach out to because of who they are or because of what they stand for, the way they live, we must in that moment behold the Jonah in us because we're more like him than we think. See, this doesn't mean that we just should turn a blind eye to blatant sin in others. It doesn't mean that. It's not talking about that. It doesn't mean as soon as somebody says something that we know is something that Jesus had to die for that we just go, yeah, it's great. Yeah. That's ridiculous. As Christians, it's a time to just stand for truth and be clear that, you know what, I'm not going to judge you, but, but I think that's wrong. It doesn't mean we just condone blatant sin in others. But here's what this does mean. Here's what this text does mean. What it does mean is as a people of God, we must be willing to reach out to whosoever with grace and truth. Whatever their colour of their skin, whatever they stand for, whatever their sexual orientation, we need to be brave enough and courageous enough to brandish the gospel and take it out to whosoever will. Because that's what Jesus did. He spent all his time with people that we may not even want in our homes. But he spent all his time with them because he loves them and because in his grace he was refusing to write people off. We must never write people off. It is wrong and sinful for us to write people off. Josh Harris says it this way. He says, God invites every man and every woman who has breath and to life to repent and to believe and to receive his free gift of salvation through his Son. For no sin is too great for God to forgive it, and no person is too helpless for his grace to transform. Isn't that wonderful? No sin is too great for God God to forgive it, and no person is too helpless for his grace to transform. We must go to whosoever will. We must go full of grace and truth to whoever despite what they look like, despite their orientations, despite the way they live and the person they are, we must not write people off because the moment we do, behold the genre in us. The moment where we say, I'm not willing to reach out to that person. Well, that's what Jonah did. And that's why God is gently pulling up a seat alongside you this morning and saying, hey, Is there anybody you'd be unwilling to reach out to? Any family member or any person at work or any person in your street or in your life that you think, I ain't going to them. I don't even like them. I've told them before, they know I'm a Christian. They didn't respond. Tough, unlucky. That's what Jonah did. We're called to go. See, the moment we find in our lives that there is somebody that we wouldn't reach out to because of the person they are, because of the way they live, behold, there's a Jonah in us. We may not be a racist, but behold, the Jonah in us. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But God's not done yet. That's another question. Here's question two. What stirs your emotions the most? What stirs them? 
What makes you happy? What makes you angry? What stirs them the most? See, Jonah was a racist. And so as a result, he is devoid of any positive emotions to the Ninevites at all. They're getting saved in their tens of thousands and he doesn't care less. He's angry towards God that he's allowed this to happen, he's caused this to happen, but for those individuals, even though they're getting saved in their thousands, he is devoid of any compassion or loving emotion towards them in any shape or form. He's got some anger going on towards the Lord and so, and so he sets out. He sets out out of the city and climbs a hill just east of Nineveh. Why? Because he wants to see if in some way God might still strike him down. That God might relent of his kindness and actually finish him off. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I mean, this, this scene, it must have been making God laugh at the same time as trying to help his son, you know, because you just think, are you for, are you for real? I mean, Jonah, gracious me, this is like a comedy sketch what we've got going on here. Jonah is off up the top of the mountain. He's off up the top of the sea. He's now sitting overlooking Nineveh, still hoping that God might relent of his kindness in some way. And that I don't know if you've ever seen it, but like an Armageddon scene of asteroids falling on the world. That's what Jonah's hoping for in this moment, that God might change his mind and finish him off. And so he's sitting there, but he's getting a bit hot. He's like, man, I'm, I'm pretty sweaty up here while I'm waiting for you to finish him off. And so God, in his grace, sends this vine. <clears throat> he provides for him this plant that, that grows over his head. It's like a leaf that may have just opened up over Jonah's head. And he's, and he's finally in the shade. And for the first time in four chapters, first time, Jonah is happy. He's happy about a plant. But for the first time, it deliberately tells us that he is exceedingly glad. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says it this way, I love it. He says, this is remarkable. Remarkable that Jonah was at last very happy. It is the first time in the story that Jonah has been happy about anything. The first thing we read about in the story was God's commission to him to preach in Nineveh. He had not liked that. Then there was the storm. He had not liked that. He had not even been happy with the second commission. And he had certainly not been happy with the repentance of Nineveh. Nothing pleased him, but here at last, Jonah was happy. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's ridiculous. Jonah's emotions have been unstirred towards people repenting in the city of Nineveh. Felt no compassion for them, no love, no joy in that whatsoever. And yet God sends a plant and it shades him for a moment. He's probably bald. This is my figuring. He, you know, he's probably got a bald head. He's probably just burning his head. And he's just there. This is amazing. This is the best thing I've ever known in my entire life. Nineveh, nothing. Plant, personal. Oh, this is great. I love my life. God's so good. Isn't this wonderful? As I'm waiting for Armageddon, I can do it in the shade. This is just wonderful. It's ridiculous unmoved emotionally towards the lost. 
heavily moved towards his own personal comfort. He's happy. But what you discover is this is a divine setup. God's on his case. God's trying to help Jonah see what is going on in his heart. So read with me verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. I love that. That's the funniest thing I've read in the Bible. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. It's getting even better. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Jonah's response. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, God must have been finding it hard to keep a straight face at this point. You know what I mean? You think, Jonah, please, just boom, boom. What are you doing? This is insane. I send a plant. It shades you. You think I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I send a worm. It withers. Oh, I hate myself. I want to die. It's a bit extreme, Jonah. See, what is clear is Jonah is undergoing a divine setup here, but what is also clear is Jonah still doesn't get it, does he? He still can't see that there's a problem getting incredibly emotionally stirred about a plant and yet not getting emotionally stirred towards the lost. He can't see that there's a problem in that at all. But of course there is. See, here in section 4, in this section of chapter 4, there is a significant focus on Jonah's emotions. That's deliberate. We see Jonah's emotions more stirred in this section than anywhere else in the entire book, and this is critical to understanding what God is trying to do and helping Jonah to see his heart. Because here's the point. What stirs our emotions the most most often reveals what we care about the most. Think about it. What stirs your emotions the most towards joy and anger most often reveals what you care about the most. I think, think of that for Jonah. Sits on the side of the hill. He's emotionally stirred. He's getting lathered up. Why? Because of a plant. Because this thing makes him comfortable. You know, he's able to cool down a bit. And then he's getting lathered up because God sends a worm and now he's uncomfortable. He's inconvenienced. He's really emotionally lathered up about that, but devoid of any emotion towards the lost. And if you've been paying attention and you're sensitive to the Lord, it may be repulsive. Maybe you've seen your own face in that as well. What stirs your emotions the most? Is it the lost? Is it the fact that people are running from the Lord and running to hell? Or is it your own personal comfort and your own personal inconvenience? See, it's sad and it's hard. But as you start looking into this chapter, if you're me, you see Jonah's face and you point at it and you think, this is hilarious, you're such an idiot. And then you notice this guy just to his right that looks very familiar. And you become aware that's the same guy that you see in the mirror every morning. See, think about it for yourself. What stirs your emotions the most? The reality is it is so easy to find ourselves so emotionally stirred about so many irrelevant things, isn't it? Have you noticed that? I mean, one of the things that happens in our house sometimes, which is 
you know, akin to World War Three, is we lose the remote control for the TV. You know what I'm saying? This is like a major issue. I mean, you have to call nearly, it's nearly 911 stuff when you realise the TV remote has gone missing. Even more so if the game or the film you want to watch is about to start. This, this has to become a family inquiry. When, when you discover there's no remote, my game is about to start. Josh, have you had the remote? Emma, have you had the remote? Has anybody, who has touched the remote? Liam, Savannah, have you put it in the bin? What have you done? It gets, we get quite lathered up about the remote control because this becomes a big deal or at least it feels like a big deal in that moment because my game's about to start. You have a few friends over. It's great. In fact, actually, we've done it a few times where we've got our family sort of birthdays and we decide we're going to have a barbecue. And it's awesome. And the first sausages are like, you know, they're sort of half done. And then you realise it doesn't feel very hot around here. And you realise the gas bottles run out. And again, you just think, this is horrendous. This is the worst thing that could have possibly happened in my life. And so you have to take it and you try and, you try and take it to the BP station as fast as you can and you discover they've sold out. There should be a national inquiry about people selling out from gas bottles. So you try and find any gas bottle you can anywhere. You see if any friend anywhere has got a gas bottle so you can rectify the problem because you need to cook these sausages for his friends. Things like this are important. We also have bathroom issues in our house on occasions. We have three bathrooms. In our old house in the UK, we didn't have three bedrooms. And yet we moved to Australia, we now have three bathrooms. It's incredible. We've got more bathrooms than just ever. And yet, there's constantly people in all three of the bathrooms. And whenever I need the bathroom, I, you know, it's, it's just awkward. So you try your ensuite. Oh, Emma's in the ensuite. Let's go to the kids. But there's somebody in that. We're going to have to go downstairs. I'm in a rush. So you go downstairs. And one of the kids is in there as well. You think, what is the world coming to? All I need is I need a wash. I need the toilet. I've got to go out. I've got to attend to important business. Does everybody just wait until you think dad might need the toilet before you go? Then there's the commute. <laughs> I've heard more about the commute moving to Sydney than, than ever. And I've experienced more of a commute in moving to Sydney. The amount of passion people display during the commute is off the charts. And I experience it myself. Sometimes you're stuck in traffic and you really need to be somewhere. And I want to, there's a few things I want to do. Firstly, I want to press the horn and just leave it. Just, uh, I just want to do that. And then I want to get out the car and become a human windmill. I just want to go through it. I just want to do anything to try and get out the situation. Do you not realise I need to be somewhere? And do you not realise I'm very important? I've got to get somewhere. You know, give me a break. The gas bottle's run out. I can't find the TV remote. Now I'm in the car. Now I'm stuck in traffic. This is ridiculous. You know, we get lathered up and emotionally passionate about totally irrelevant things. And yet if you're like me, you can go from that TV remote control moment and gas bottle moment and commute moment to driving into the driveway, noticing the neighbour who is running to hell and to say, hey, I feel nothing. Unmoved to try and reach her unmoved that she needs the gospel. In such a rush and consumed with this, this person, my own comfort, my own inconvenience, 
and almost unaware to the fact that there are people around me in their hundreds that are running away from the Lord and destined for hell, standing around me with their orange jumpsuits on ready on death row, lathered about the TV remote, upset about the gas bottle, the commute, it's horrendous. People going to hell? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I should probably give that some attention. I think I wrote a few people on my C4 card. Unmoved. Unaffected in the same way. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard viewing. But when you see Jonah 4 carefully, you realize, gosh, my face is there. I'm no different. Probably wouldn't have got lathered up about a a plant and a shade. No. Get leathered up about a TV remote control instead. My friends, here's the good news as we complete the book of Jonah. If you have seen the Jonah in you, there is great news for you. Like there was great news for Jonah. And the great news is this, that one greater than Jonah was still to come. One far greater than Jonah was still to come. For one day, one greater than Jonah would also find himself sitting on a hill overlooking a city and yet his heart would be so different from Jonah's. Jonah overlooked Nineveh hoping for judgment and yet Jesus overlooked Jerusalem filled with compassion. Jonah overlooked a city that that actually obeyed God, that actually turned to God and repented of their sin and sought to follow God And yet Jesus overlooked Jerusalem, a city that had rejected him and would ultimately crucify him. And yet as Jonah overlooked his city with condemnation and a hope of judgment and anger, Jesus overlooked his city and wept for them because he was filled with compassion for them. It's staggering. A compassion that would ultimately drive him to the cross The compassion that would ultimately leave him hanging on a wooden cross. Why? So that people like me and you could be forgiven of our sin. That we could be forgiven of all the times when we blow it and we don't go and we know we should. For all the times when we miss the opportunities that he gives us. For all the time when we know we should be going to Nineveh, we instead get on a cruise to Tarshish. He made it possible on the cross for you to be forgiven of all that sin, but more than that. He also made it possible through the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gave you upon salvation, he made it possible for there to be grace for change. He inserted himself into your life. He brought you alive in the Spirit. And the reason why then Jonah is here and the reason why he shows us our faces is not to condemn us and make us feel guilty, it's to convict us so that we cry out to him all the more for change. We are his hands and feet on the earth now. We are his hands and feet towards Nineveh. And so as we see ourselves in the mirror, it isn't to condemn, it's to give grace, it's to supply us with uncomfortable grace so that we pursue him for grace for change. So that we can become more and more like him. Isn't it wonderful the way he works like that? Working in us and through us. Empowering us and opening our eyes so that we can change for his glory. There is great hope for change. If you've seen the Jonah in you today, well, that makes at least two of us. And together, I think we can have great hope for change. And that hope for change is Jesus. 
and the Spirit of Jesus that lives in our lives. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Verse 11 says this, it says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Seems like such an odd way of finishing a great book, doesn't it? It's just a question. Like, what's that got to do with it? I don't, don't get it. Here's what's going on there, I think. In the question, it's clear that all eyes are on Jonah. As we finish the book then, reading it together, we must understand that all eyes are now on us. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? Wherever we see ourselves in the mirror, James tells us, we we need to see ourselves and then go through grace-motivated change because we're blessed in our doing. So what do we do? Well, three things just quickly to close. The things that I want to recommend for you, which I'm trying to apply in my own life as well. Number one, would we cry out to God in confession and in need of his grace for change? Would we cry out to him in confession and in need of his grace for change? See, what Nineveh was doing in repenting towards the Lord is exactly what Jonah should have been doing aware of who he is before the Lord. He should have been made aware of his own life, of, Lord, I need to repent of my sin. You've saved people in your thousands. Lord, I'm so sorry that it took me so long to go to them. We need to cry out to God in our sin, repent of our sin, and cry out to him for his grace, because we need his grace, don't we? We're not just going to be able to smash this out, are we? We're not going to be able to just go from this and think, yeah, great, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to whoever. It's harder than that. We need his grace to change. And folks, I want to encourage you. I think a great person that shows us that change is possible is Jonah. Because here's what I believe. I believe Jonah wrote this book. There's so many details in the book that only Jonah wouldn't know. Only Jonah knew what took place up that hill between him and the Lord. Only Jonah knew what took place in the belly of a great fish. Only he knew. And I submit to you, unlike the um, vegetables that says he was a prophet and he never got it, I think he's a prophet and he totally got it. Because I think at some time in his life, he realised that God was so gracious to him and he wrote this book so we can learn from him. It doesn't leave him in favourable light but all the more point then to show that God had clearly moved in his grace through the questions to help humble him. I think Jonah did get it. And I think if we cry out to the Lord, we can get it too. People can change. We can grow in compassion for people. So we, we start by crying out to God in confession and in need of his grace for change. Number two, would we pray to God for the Ninevites around us? We cry out to God for those outside of the kingdom. My friends, they're everywhere. Pray for people around you. And think specifically, if there was someone or some people in your life that you determined, uh, you know, that would be a bridge too far for me, that that would be too hard to reach out to them, just makes me feel uncomfortable, I don't want to do that. Well, start by praying for them first. Pray for them. Lord, would you save them? Lord, help me go after them. Lord, you've put them in my life and I need to go to them. And then number three, would we truly...
go to them. We've got to go. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We stand with the disciples when Jesus himself said, you know, just as the Father sent me, I now send you. We have our Jonah call. And you only have to open your eyes to Sydney and those around to realise we have our Nineveh as well. We've just got to go. We've got to have eyes to see. Grace has got to come into our life. And we've got to go. Well, my friends, the best way I think we can conclude this series is by ultimately going. Prior to that, I want to give us some minutes now to actually do those first two points, to cry out to God in confession and in need of his grace for change and also cry out to God for the Nineveh around us, for Sydney. So I'd like to ask the band if they'd come up. And for the rest of us, I'd like us to get into groups of about four and five and let's pray for each other. Let's cry out to God where we're aware that I need to change it. Cry out to God for change. <clears throat> and let's cry out to people for God, for people in our lives, for Sydney. If you're visiting this morning, we don't want to embarrass you. So if you want to take part in this, great. If you don't, that's okay as well. But let's just take, take five minutes. The band are going to play. And let's get in groups of four or five and let's pray. Amen? All right.